Chapter 10 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collinwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Captain Johnson explains himself. The cabin of the Albatross was a much larger apartment than one would have expected to find in a craft of her size. It was about twenty feet long and eighteen feet broad, occupying the entire width of the ship. The staterooms, of which there were only two, being outside the cabin, at the foot of the companion staircase. The apartment was well lighted and very airy, light and air being admitted not only through the skylight, but also through the stern ports and deadlights fitted into the sides of the ship. The fittings were extremely rich, though somewhat out of harmony with each other, conveying to Captain Staunton's educated eye the idea that they had been collected at odd times from a number of other ships. The rudder case, for example, was enclosed in a piece of elaborate carved and gilded work representing the trunk and branches of a palm tree, but it had apparently been found too large, and the sections had accordingly been cut down to make them fit, the result being that the carving did not match at the junctions. The trunk of the tree had also been cut off rather clumsily at the base, and fitted badly to the cabin floor, while the branches had been cut through in places where the beams crossed the ceiling, and had been nailed on again in such a way as to make them look as though they had been grown through the beams. Then again, the cushions to the lockers were of different sizes, colors, and materials, some being of velvet and others of horsehair, and every one of them from one to three sizes too large. The sides of the cabin were divided into panels by carved and gilded pilasters, which exhibited in a very marked degree the same incongruity, the eight pilasters in the cabin exhibiting no less than three different patterns. Some half a dozen pictures, one or two of which were really valuable paintings, were securely hung in the panels, and the stern windows were fitted with handsome lace curtains, much too large for the position which they occupied. Two very handsome swinging lamps, of different designs, were suspended from the beams. A tell-tale compass and a ship's barometer occupied respectively the fore and after ends of the skylight, and the bulkhead which formed the fore end of the cabin was fitted above the sideboard with racks in which reposed six repeating rifles, the panels which were unoccupied by pictures being filled in with trophies of stars and other fanciful devices formed with pistols, daggers, and cutlasses. Such was the apartment to which our adventurers found themselves welcomed. But if the truth must be told, their eyes, notwithstanding their recent meal on board the launch, were chiefly attracted to the cabin table whereon was spread, on a not over-clean tablecloth, an abundant display of plate and a substantial yet appetizing meal to which their host urged them to do full justice, himself setting a good example. For a short time, and while host and guests were taking the keen edge off their appetites, very little was said. At length, however, Captain Johnson looked up, and addressing Captain Staunton said, "'Well, stranger, as I said before, I'm real glad to see you all. Yours are the first friendly faces I've looked upon for many a long day.' but I guess I'm considerable troubled what to do with you all. You see, our accommodation is sorter limited. There's plenty of room for your men in the foxhole, but here's no less than ten of you, reckoning the pickaninny, bless her dear purty little face. I wish she'd give me a kiss. Four years ago I left just such another on the wharf at New York, kissing her hand to me and waving me goodbye as we cast off our moorings, and I guess I'll never see her sweet face again. At her mother's suggestion, little May slid down off the locker on which she was perched, and somewhat reluctantly went to the man's chair and held up her little mouth for a kiss. 
Johnson at once bent down, and taking her on his knee, gazed long and eagerly into the bright young face uplifted to his own in childish curiosity. Then he kissed her eagerly three or four times, stroked her curly head tenderly with his great brown hand, and finally burst out, "'See here, my purty little dearie, if e'er a one of them great rough men on deck there says a bad word to you, or dares to as much as look unkind at you, you tell me, and curse me if—' I beg your pardon, strangers. I guess I didn't know just then what I was talking about. Run along, little un, and get your breakfast. The child at once slid down from his knee, and with some little haste returned to her former place by her mother's side, Johnson's gaze following her abstractedly. You were speaking about the inconvenience to which our appearance seems likely to put you, at length suggested Captain Staunton. "'I guess not, stranger,' he retorted, pulling himself together as it were with a jerk. "'I was simply pintin' out that our accommodation for passengers is kinder limited, and I'm puzzled to know where I can stow you all away. The inconvenience will be yourn, stranger, not mine. There's reasons, you see, why I should keep possession of my own cabin, and there's reasons, too, why the mate should keep possession of his'n. I reckon the best plan will be to clear away a place for you down in the afterhold.' where you must try and make yourselves as comfortable as you can for the few days you'll be on board. And as for you ladies, I'd sorter advise you to stay below all you can. If you must go on deck at all, let it be at night time, when there ain't so much chance of your being seen. Where are you bound, Captain? inquired the skipper. Well, we are bound now to an island which, as it's not shown on the chart, I've christened Albatross Island, arter the brig. We're going there to refit, was the reply. "'Then I presume you have established a sort of depot there?' interrogated Captain Staunton. "'That's just it. You've hit it exactly, stranger,' answered the Yankee. "'And how long will it take you to refit?' was the next question. "'Maybe a week, maybe a month. It just depends upon whether the hands are in a working humor or no.' Captain Staunton raised his eyebrows somewhat at this singular answer. After a moment or two of silence, he said, I presume you would find no difficulty in running us across to, say, Valparaiso, if you were well paid for the service? Cash down? Captain Staunton was about to say yes, having saved from the burning ship a bag of species sufficient in amount to convey the entire party home in perfect comfort. But an idea struck him that it would perhaps be better to promise payment after rather than before the performance of the service, so he said, Well, no, I could not promise that but I would draw on my owners for the amount of our passage money and pay you immediately on our arrival at Valparaiso. Well, I guess I'll have to think it over, remarked Johnson. I must go on deck now, but you can remain here as long as you like. In fact, I reckon you'd better stay here altogether until I can get a place arranged for you below. Saying which, he abruptly rose from the table and went on deck. Rather an unique specimen of the genus Yankee, observed Rex as soon as their host had fairly disappeared. I hope, Captain, you will succeed in persuading him to take us over to the mainland. The skipper was apparently plunged deep in thought, for he made no reply. Does it not strike you, Bowles, that there is something rather peculiar about the craft and her crew? remarked Lance. These Yankees are generally a queer lot, answered the mate nonchalantly, but immediately afterwards he made a sudden and stealthy movement of his fingers to his lips, while the ladies were looking in another direction throwing at the same time an expression of so much caution and mystery into his glance that Lance made no attempt to continue the conversation. Shortly afterwards, Captain Staunton rose from his seat at the table 
and touching his chief mate lightly on the shoulder, said, "'Come, Bowles, let us go on deck and see if we can make terms with this Captain Johnson. The rest of you had perhaps better follow that gentleman's advice in the meantime and remain here, since he evidently has some motive for expressing the wish.' As the two were ascending the companion ladder, the skipper turned and whispered hurriedly to his mate, "'What is your opinion of things in general, Bowles?' can't say yet answered that individual looks mighty queer though she ain't a man of war that's certain on reaching the deck they found the after hatch off and their host in somewhat hot discussion with the ship's carpenter that is quite sufficient they heard him say without a trace of the yankee twang in his speech you have your orders and see that they are executed forthwith in this matter i intend to have my own way the man muttered something in a sullen undertone and then turned to go forward, saying he would get his tools and set about the job at once. Johnson turned impatiently away from him with an ugly frown upon his brow, which, however, vanished in an instant upon his finding our two friends at his elbow. "'See here, stranger,' he said, passing his arm within that of Captain Staunton, and drawing him toward the hatchway. "'I want to show you what I'm going to do. See them beams?' Well, I'm going to send some hands down below to trim a few of them bales you see there up level with the tops of the beams. Then we'll lay a couple of thicknesses of planking over all, which'll make a tolerable floor. And then I'm going to have a sail nailed fore and aft to the deck beams, dividing the space into two, one for the women folks and one for the men. And another sail set athwart ships will make all sorter snug and private. And I guess you'll have to make yourselves as comfortable as you can down there. You see the brig's small, and your party's a large one, and I guess that's the best I can do for you. Thank you, said Captain Staunton. As far as we men are concerned, we can manage perfectly well down there. But I'm afraid it will be rather a comfortless berth for the ladies, and yet I do not see very well what else can be done, unless indeed we could come to some arrangement by which you and your chief mate could be induced to surrender the cabin altogether for their use. Which we can't, Johnson broke in sharply. I tell you, stranger, it ain't to be done. I reckon I was a fool to let you come aboard here at all. It was seeing that girl of yours that did it, he added, his voice at once softening again. But I guess there's going to be trouble about it yet before all's done. Oh, no, I hope not, returned the skipper. Why should there be trouble, or with whom? Certainly not with us. Well, I hope not, said Johnson. But I reckon you'll have to do just exactly as I say, strangers or I tell you I'll not answer for the consequences. Assuredly we will, observed Captain Staunton, and as for the inconvenience, we must put up with it as best we can, and I only hope we shall not be compelled to intrude upon your hospitality for any great length of time. Indeed, you might rid yourself of our presence in a fortnight by running us across to Valparaiso, and I think I could make it worth your while to do so. Johnson turned away and walked thoughtfully fore and aft, with his chin sunk upon his breast, evidently in painful thought, for some ten minutes. Then he rejoined the pair he had left standing at the hatchway and said, "'See here, strangers. I reckon it's no use to mince matters and go beating about the bush. The thing's got to come out sooner or later, so you may as well know the worst at once. You must give up all notion of going to Valparaiso, because the thing ain't to be done. We're a crew of free traders, rovers, pirates if that term will make matters more clear to you and although we've only been cruising in these waters about six months i guess we've made things too hot here for us to venture into any port but the one we're bound to there you'll be put ashore and i calculate you'll have to make yourselves useful at the depot there's plenty of work to be done there and not too many to do it 
so you'll be valuable there. I won't keep you on board here, because I can see you'd never work with me, or be anything else but an anxiety to me. But there you can't do me any harm. And take my advice, stranger. Don't cut up rough. Go slow and sing small when you get there, because my chief mate, who is a Greek and is in charge there, is a powerful short-tempered man, and apt to make things downright uncomfortable for them that don't please him. Captain Staunton and Bowles looked each other in the face for a full minute, too much overcome by consternation and dismay to utter a single word. Then the skipper, recovering himself, turned to Johnson, who stood by intently watching them, and said, I thank you, sir, for having come to the point and put our position thus explicitly before us with so little waste of time. Happily, the evil is not yet irreparable. We can never be anything but a source of anxiety and disquietude to you, as you have already admitted. Therefore, I trust you will allow us to return to our boat as we came, by which act we shall relieve you of a very great embarrassment, and at the same time give ourselves a chance, a very slight one, it is true, of arriving at the place we are so anxious to reach. Too late, stranger, replied Johnson. Here you are, and here you must now stay. Look over the side, and you will see that your boat is no longer there. She was stove and cast adrift half an hour ago. And even if she had still been alongside, do you think my men would let you go now that you have been aboard us and seen our strength? I tell you, stranger, that before you could get ten yards from the brig, they would bring her broadside to bear upon you and send you all to the bottom, riddled with grape, and I couldn't stop them. No, you're here, and I reckon you'll have to stay and make the best of it. You'll find your traps down below there. The lads wanted to overhaul them, but I guess I shamed them out of that drawing half out of his pockets a pair of revolvers as he spoke. "'Are we to consider ourselves as prisoners, then, and to look upon the hold there as our jail?' inquired Captain Staunton. "'That's as you please,' retorted Johnson. "'So long as you keep quiet and don't attempt any tricks, you can come on deck as often as you like. Only don't let the women folks show themselves, or they'll get into trouble. And I, nor you, won't be able to help them. Tell them to stay in the cabin until it's dark tonight.' And then when all's quiet, the watch below in their hammocks, and the watch on deck caulking between the guns, just you muffle em up and get em down there as quick as ever you can. And what about the rest of my people, those of them who were sent forward to the foxhole? inquired Captain Staunton. Wall, replied Johnson, I felt myself sorter obliged to clap em in irons down in the forehold. You see, you muster a pretty strong party, and though you could never take the brig from us, I didn't know what you might be tempted to try when you found out the truth. And so, just to prevent accidents, I had the irons slipped on to them. They'll be well treated, though, and if any of them likes to join us, so much the better. We are uncommon short-handed one way and another. If they don't like to join, they'll just be put ashore with you to work at the depot. And see here, stranger, don't you go for to try on any tricks, either here or ashore, or it'll be awful bad for you. This is a friendly warning, mind. I'd like to make friends with you folks, for, to tell you the solid petrified truth, I ain't got one single friend among all hands. The mate hates me and would be glad to put me out of the way and step into my shoes, and he's made the men distrust me. Why not retire from them altogether, then, inquired Captain Staunton. Because I can't, answered Johnson. I'm an outlaw and dare not show my face anywhere in the whole civilized world for fear of being recognized and hanged as a pirate. A decidedly unpleasant position to be in, remarked the skipper. 
However, if there is any way in which we can lawfully help you, we will do so, in return for which we shall of course expect to be treated well by you. Now, Bowles, he continued, turning to his chief mate, let us talk this matter over and discuss the manner in which this bad news can best be broken to the others. Saying which, with a somewhat cold and formal bow to the pirate, Captain Staunton linked his arm in that of his chief mate and walked away. The two promenaded the deck for nearly an hour, overhauling the concern in all its bearings, as Bowles afterwards described it, and they finally came to the conclusion that it would be only fair to let their companions in misfortune know the worst at once. Then all could take counsel together, and as in a multitude of counsellors there is wisdom, some one might possibly hit upon a happy idea whereby they might be enabled to escape from this new strait. They accordingly descended to the cabin, where their reappearance had been anxiously looked for. "'Well, Captain,' exclaimed Dale upon their entrance, "'what news have you for us?' Have you made arrangements for our conveyance to Valparaiso? I hope we are not going to be kept cooped up very long in this wretched little vessel. We are to leave her sooner than I anticipated, replied Captain Staunton, but I regret to say that I have been quite unable to make any arrangements of a satisfactory character. And as to news, I must ask you to prepare yourselves for the worst, or almost the worst, that you could possibly hear. We are on board a pirate and in the hands of as unscrupulous a set of rascals as one could well encounter. The skipper then proceeded to describe, in extenso, his interview with the pirate captain, throwing out such ideas as presented themselves to him in the course of his narrative, and winding up by pointing out to them that though the situation was serious enough, it was not altogether desperate. The pirate leader, being evidently anxious to escape from his present position, and as evidently disposed to look with friendly eyes upon all who might seemed to have it in their power to assist him, either directly or indirectly, in the attainment of his purpose. Our first endeavor, he said in conclusion, must be to impress upon this man that, though we are his prisoners, we are still a power, by reason of our numbers as well as of our superior intelligence and knowledge of the world, and that we can certainly help him if we have the opportunity. And this idea, once firmly established in his mind, he will listen to and very possibly fall in with some of our suggestions, all of which, I suppose I need hardly say, must be made with a single eye to our own ultimate escape. Our future is beset by difficulties, very few of which we can even anticipate as yet, but I think if each one will only take a hopeful view of the situation, it will be singular indeed if one or another of us does not hit upon a means of escape." By the time that he had finished speaking, the brains of his hearers were literally teeming with ideas, all, that is to say, except Mr. Dale, who, with elbows on the table, his head buried in his hands, and his hair all rumpled, abandoned himself to despair and to loud bewailings of the unfortunate combination of circumstances which led to his venturing upon the treacherous ocean. The others, however, knew him thoroughly by this time, and none troubled themselves to take the slightest notice of him except Rex Fortescue, who exclaimed, "'Do shut up, Dale, and cease making a fool of yourself. I wonder that you are not ashamed to behave in this unmanly way, especially before ladies, too. If you can't keep quiet, you know, we shall have to put you on deck, where I fancy you would get something worth howling about.' This threat had the desired effect. Mr. Dale subsided into silence, and the rest of the party at once, in low, cautious tones, began an interchange of ideas which lasted a long time, but brought forth no satisfactory result. 
the council finding itself at the close of the discussion pretty much where it was at the commencement. At one o'clock a thoroughly substantial dinner was served to them, followed by tea at six in the evening, at both of which meals the pirate captain did the honors with a manifest desire to evince a friendly disposition toward his guests, and about nine p.m. a quiet and unobtrusive removal from the cabin to their new quarters in the afterhold was effected, after which most of the party disposed themselves comfortably upon the bedding which they found had been provided for them, and enjoyed a night of thoroughly sound repose, such as they had been strangers to ever since the destruction of the Galatea. When our friends awoke on the following morning, they became aware, by the motion of the ship and the sound of the water gurgling along her sides, that a breeze had sprung up. Most of the gentlemen, all of them in fact except Dale, went on deck, and finding the watch busy washing decks, borrowed of them a few buckets with which they gave each other a most hearty and refreshing salt-water douche, much to the amusement of the crew. As soon as breakfast was over, Lance, with that cool insouciance characteristic of the man who has so often found himself environed by perils that he ceases to think of them, went again on deck, with the intention of mingling freely with the pirate crew, and, if possible, placing himself upon such easy terms with them as would give him an opportunity of acquiring whatever information it might be in their power to give. The first individual he saw on emerging from the hatchway was Johnson, the pirate captain, who was leaning moodily over the lee rail abaft the main rigging, smoking a well-seasoned pipe. "'Good morning, Captain,' exclaimed Lance genially, as he sauntered up to the man. "'What a delightful morning, and how good your tobacco smells. I have not enjoyed the luxury of a pipe for the last fortnight. Have you any tobacco to spare?' "'Help yourself, stranger,' answered Johnson rather surlily, as he tendered his tobacco pouch. "'Thanks,' said Lance, returning the pouch after he had filled and lighted his pipe. "'Ah, how good this is!' as he took the first whiff or two. "'You have a fine breeze after yesterday's calm, and the brig seems quite a traveller in her small way.' "'In her small way!' exclaimed Johnson indignantly. "'Why, she's a flyer, stranger. That's what she is. I reckon you don't know much about ships, or you wouldn't talk like that. I guess you ain't a sailor, are you?' "'I am a soldier by profession,' answered Lance. But for all that, I am not exactly an unmitigated landlubber. On the contrary, I am quite an enthusiastic yachtsman, and I flatter myself that I know a good model when I see one. And yet you don't take much account of the brig, stranger? She seems a good enough little craft of her kind, admitted Lance, and as a mere trader, I have no doubt she would answer well enough. But it strikes me that, to gentlemen of your profession, a really fast and powerful vessel is an absolute necessity, if you would ensure your own safety. In weather like this, I dare say you would manage tolerably well, but if a frigate were by any chance to fall in with you in a fresh breeze, or, worse still, in heavy weather, I fear you would find yourselves in a tight place. She would have you under her guns in less than an hour. That's so, stranger, yes, I reckon that's so, conceded Johnson with evident reluctance. There are ships as can outsail us. I know, for we've fallen in with some half a dozen clippers, and we couldn't do nothing with them. They just walked away from us. And though I don't calculate that there's ever a frigate afloat as could get alongside them T-ships, if the T-ships didn't want them to, yet I guess there's frigates as could overhaul us in heavy weather. And so you're a yachtsman, eh? Then I reckon you know something about quick sailing? How fast now do you calculate a yacht would sail in this breeze? That depends entirely upon the build and model of the craft. 
If she were a racing schooner of, say, the tonnage of this brig, I dare say her speed under such circumstances as these would be thirteen or perhaps fourteen knots. If, however, she were merely a cruising yacht, such as my own, I do not imagine she would average more than eleven. Eleven knots! Josh, I say! Stranger, how many knots do you reckon we are making just now? exclaimed Johnson. Lance looked over the side for a moment, marked a piece of weed floating past, and then answered, "'About eight, I should think. Certainly not more.' "'I guess you're wrong, stranger,' returned the pirate skipper with animation. "'She's going ten if she's going an inch.' "'You can easily test it by heaving the log,' suggested Lance. "'Aft here, two of you, and heave the log,' shouted Johnson. Two men came sauntering aft at the call. The line and glass were prepared.' and Johnson himself made ready to test the speed of the brig. "'Turn!' he cried to the man who held the glass, as the last of the stray passed out over the taffrail. The glass was smartly turned, the reel spun rapidly round, the marks flew through Johnson's fingers, and his countenance brightened with exultation. "'Stop!' The sand had all run out, and Johnson grasped the line just before the eighth knot reached his hand. "'Tarnation! You're right, stranger!' he angrily exclaimed. "'Wall, I swan I made sure she was going ten at the very least.' "'You skippers very often make that kind of mistake,' remarked Lance. "'Or rather, it is not so much a mistake as a self-deception. "'You would like your ship to have a speed of ten knots in such weather as this, "'and the wish is father to the thought. "'Besides which, having formed an attachment for your ship, "'you are naturally anxious to give strangers also a favorable impression of her.' "'That's so, stranger. Sure as you're standing there, you've exactly hit it. I knew the craft wa not doing over eight at the outside, but the way you talked about that yacht of yours sort of put my back up, and I allowed I weren't going to let you have all the big talk to yourself. About this yacht of yours, Colonel, where is she now?' "'Where I left her, no doubt,' answered Lance with a smile. "'Safe and sound on the mud of Hassler Creek, inside Portsmouth Harbor.' I suppose, as she's such a flyer, that one of the crack English builders put her together, inquired Johnson. No, indeed, said Lance. She was built at Weymouth by an ordinary shipbuilder who, for aught I know, had never in his life built a yacht before. I was stationed there at the time, and I designed her myself, and of course superintended her construction. You don't say. Well, I knew that the soldiers did most everything, but I didn't allow that they designed yachts, exclaimed Johnson. "'Neither do we, professionally,' admitted Lance, "'but some of us, of whom I happen to be one, "'take up the study of naval architecture as an amusement. "'And those who, like myself, belong to the Engineer Corps, "'are to some extent qualified by our technical education "'to achieve excellence in the art. "'I can assure you that some of the officers in my corps "'have turned out exceedingly creditable craft.' "'Wall, now, that beats ah!' exclaimed Johnson.' "'So you're an engineer and can design yachts into the bargain. "'Stranger,' laying his hand impressively on Lance's arm, "'I'm real glad I took you all aboard. "'About this schooner of yours. "'She is a schooner, I reckon.' "'Lance nodded in affirmative. "'Wall, about this schooner of yours. "'Is she a pretty sea-boat?' "'She is as comfortable a vessel as I would ever wish to have under my feet,' "'answered Lance, with just a slight touch of enthusiasm.' She will face any weather a frigate would dare to look at, and in a gale of wind, such as once caught us in the Bay of Biscay, is a great deal drier and more comfortable than many frigates would be. Wall, now, 
I call this real interesting, exclaimed Johnson with sparkling eyes. And I suppose she was tolerable weatherly? About the same as other vessels of her class. All yachts, you know, if they are the least worthy to name, go to windward well. It is one of their strong points. Do you think now, Colonel, you could recollect enough to design another yacht just like your own schooner? asked Johnson eagerly. "'Well,' said Lance slowly, as he first began to perceive the direction in which Johnson's thoughts were tending, "'I am by no means sure that I could. However, as a brilliant idea dawned upon him, I am certain that, with the experience I have gained since I designed the fleet wing, I could build one which should excel her in all respects.' "'Wall, now, this is what I call a real pleasant conversation,' exclaimed Johnson, with enthusiasm." Now, see here, Colonel, I guess I'll get you to draw out that design right away. I am sure I shall be very pleased, said Lance, but why do you wish for such a thing? You will surely not venture, after what you have already told us, to visit a civilized port and order a vessel to be built? I guess not, stranger. I've three prizes lying in harbor not far off, which I kept, thinking they might come in useful some day, and we'll break them up to build this new craft." You shall superintend the work, and as you're an engineer, I reckon I'll get you to fortify the harbor also, so as to make things secure in case one of them frigates you was talking about should come along and take a fancy to look inside. Very well, said Lance. I will do what I can, both in the matter of fortifying the harbor and building the new craft. Upon the express condition, however, you must understand that we are all treated well as long as we remain with you and that you will make an early opportunity to free us as soon as the work is done. "'Don't you be afraid, stranger,' returned Johnson. "'You do the best you can for me, and I guess I'll do the right thing by you. That's a bargain.' "'There is just one point which occurs to me,' remarked Lance. "'It is this. To do what you propose, we shall require a great deal of assistance. Now, where are we to find it?' "'If it's men you mean, I reckon you'll find plenty of them at Albatross Island.' "'Men ain't always to be picked up at sea just when they're wanted,' said Johnson. "'So I've took to keeping my prisoners alive and landing them there, "'so's I can draw upon them when I want to. "'And I've found that if they won't cut in and take a hand with us exactly to once, "'they generally will a little later on, just to escape being worked to death ashore.' "'And what about materials?' persisted Lance. "'To construct a battery, and to make it serviceable, you know, "'stone, lime, iron, and wood in considerable quantities are required.' to say nothing of guns, powder, and shot with which to arm the battery when it is finished. "'We've got it all,' exclaimed Johnson. "'All, that is, except an iron, and that we're very short of. There's stone in the island, and I guess you can make lime from the coral, can't you? And as to the guns and ammunition, why, it's only three months ago that we helped ourselves to a whole battery full belonging to the Spaniards away there on the mainland.' "'Well,' said Lance, I cannot, of course, decide exactly how to use your resources to the best advantage until I have seen them and the place. As far, however, as the design of the new ship is concerned, I can set about it at once. I must ask you, however, to release the carpenter and Bob, the apprentice, and to allow them to join us aft. The carpenter is a practical man whose advice and assistance will be most valuable to me. And as for Bob, he has been brought up in a district famous for yacht building and will be sure to prove helpful to us. "'Very well, Colonel. I reckon you can have them,' said Johnson. "'Only don't you be persuaded to try any tricks on account of having two extra hands, "'because if you do, 
I calculate you'll find us always ready. All right, laughed Lance. I'll keep your warning and advice in mind. By the by, before I go below, let me suggest that as a few of us are, like myself, smokers, a pound or so of tobacco now and then would be regarded as a delicate attention on your part. Right you are, Colonel, answered Johnson cordially. You shall have the tobacco and some cigars, too, if you like them. I guess we've got plenty of both on board. So saying, Johnson turned upon his heel and dived below for his sextant. End of chapter 10